welcome to Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. I tend to be pretty pessimistic about the ability of the public school system to innovate and do something that's really different. But Ted Dintersmith is one of the people who convinces me that maybe that's possible. He had a successful career as a venture capitalist before essentially dedicating himself to discovering the coolest schools in the United States and talking about them and writing about them. And I think perhaps most effectively making a documentary film about them called Most Likely to Succeed. It's a really good film. I suggest you check it out. You can rent it online. And yeah, without further ado, I'm going to let Ted tell you in his own words what he's been up to. Here we go. My guest today is Ted Dintersmith. Welcome to the podcast, Ted. Great to be here. So you are an education reformer, a former venture capitalist. You've produced a movie. You have uh, written and co-authored some books. How did you get to this point? Can you give me the brief story of how you ended up here? Yeah, I spent my career in technology innovation. I realized that innovation's wiping out lots of routine jobs. It's changing what's required for any job that remains, and it's increasingly complicating what's required to be a responsible citizen. First piece. Second piece, you know, initially from my own kids and then broadening as I started to visit schools, I realized that not only is school not preparing kids for that world, it's actually anti-preparing them. That 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 in many ways, kids were being pushed to get good at things that made them redundant with machine intelligence and crushed out of them their audacity, their their creativity, their independence, their autonomy. And so when you look at those two things colliding, you know, machine intelligence moving ahead at warp speed, just completely restructuring what means to engage in society productively, and school not keeping pace at all struck me as a big issue. And so I said, I, I think that's something I'd like to kind of take on as, as a, the next chapter of my life. Mm-hmm. And earlier on, uh, something I learned about you when, when researching you was that you went to Stanford, you studied physics as an undergrad, and then you went to Stanford for graduate school in physics. And it was it within just the first month that you realized you really shouldn't be there? Uh, you didn't, you felt like a stranger? Uh, yeah, and it was about that fast. And, um, and it wasn't a, a social stranger, it was an intellectual stranger. Mm. And, and the reason is that, you know, so i had always done incredibly well on anything math or science related on standardized tests, and or grades. And so you sort of look at that, and you say, man, I was on a path to be a world class physicist. And then I got there, and I'm in a, an environment with, you know, professors that had won Nobel Prizes with office mates that, that one of them may well win a Nobel Prize. And you realize that to be really great at physics, it's, it's incredibly creative and conceptual. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, that wasn't what I was good at. I was good at doing, you know, kind of low-level problems quickly under time pressure without making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the bad news is I wasn't smart enough to be a world-class physicist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the good news is the good news is I realized that and I did something else, and um, but you know it, I think it sort of in some ways set a precondition for me in terms of thinking about the false positives that school sends uh-huh. as well as false negatives. Uh-huh. I feel a lot of camaraderie with you because I went to Berkeley to study astrophysics as an undergrad, and about halfway through, I had that moment where I looked around and I said, "Oh my gosh, all these other people are on track to becoming real research scientists." And I am just the fake. I somehow got in here, and I'm just managing to doggy paddle and keep my head above water. 
but this is not the right path for me. And, and like yeah. you, I also got a lot of positive reinforcement from, uh, from my school performance, especially in math and science. And it just made, it made sense in the, the dominant way of thinking that you just keep doing that until you get the highest degree possible and go to the, the best college and grad school possible. And, and that's it. Why would you do anything else? Well, it sounds like we should have been classmates. Yeah, yeah. Well, except you actually stuck it out in Stanford, and you ended up with a PhD in some sort of applied math. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually a great program. It was um, using math models to try to gain better better understanding of r- real world problems, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and it's it's something that's not taught in you know K through twelve math anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's rarely taught in college math, and it's really one of the most interesting uses of math. I mean, it's, it, it's brings to light all sorts of things that you can accomplish with math as your ally, hmm. but, but it sort of gets swept aside because, you know, in, in real math, you know, you, there is no right answer in real math. There are creative approaches taken that nobody's taken before. So it doesn't lend itself to standardized tests. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of a, an astronomy course that I took where the professor was very adamant that we get good at, at ballparking numbers. He was all about orders of magnitude. And he said, you should be able to tell me to an order of magnitude, you know, how far away is a planet versus the next solar system versus yeah. uh, you know, anything out there. How big is the sun versus how big is Pluto to an order of magnitude. And that was so useful for, for future math, kind of applied math in my life in a way that finding very precise answers didn't seem to be that useful. Um, well, you know, it's, I mean, I'll build on that because in my yeah. book, the book I wrote with Tony Wagner, I, I talk about this example of um, kids being challenged to estimate the world's population in the year 2100, which to this day is the best math challenge I've seen in a K-12 mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. But this was eighth grade social studies. And you realize those types of things, prediction, estimation theory, they're really interesting. They're fun. Kids get engaged in it. And Oftentimes, kids that think they're not good at math do really well, and vice versa. And and yet, those types of things, being able to make rough estimates of something with with a level of creativity and clarity in the way you go about it, that's a really important skill to have in life. Mm-hmm. Whereas so much of what's going on in grade eight through twelve math, you know, you, your photo math on your smartphone does it instantly. So why are kids toiling away at that? Yeah, and that makes me very sympathetic to your argument that we shouldn't compete with machines, you know, which I've heard from many different voices. And and it makes sense because why do you need to do that calculation, as you said, when your smartphone or some other piece of software can do it for you? Um, I've been running travel programs for homeschooled and unschooled teenagers, and we have a budget. We have to stay within that budget, and there's all these little purchases that need to be made you know, while taking a group of 12 teenagers across some foreign land. And just being able to quickly ballpark those numbers uh, has helped me stay within budgets and therefore run a business. Uh, and, and that's something that, as you said, never really got taught in school. It was all about these precise calculations, yeah. not about quick on-the-fly math, which seems to be what, what most people use outside of very technical fields. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, we could stay on math for a long time, but it's funny when you talk about these types of problems, so many people in the field of, of K-12 math say, oh, but wait, there, there's no right answer. As though that's not consistent with math and its full beauty. Mm. But the reality is math and its few full beauty. I mean, it's like when you do something like an estimation, I mean, there are creative ways to go at it, but there, there isn't a right answer. It's not a multiple choice thing. It's, it's a 
draws out conceptual and creative skills in a way that really is consistent with being phenomenal down the road in math or in physics or in any science, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but once you lock in on, well, we can only do problems where there's the a right answer, because that means you can put it on a bubble test. You, I think, have taken all the joy and interest out of the math curriculum. So I think the listeners of this podcast are going to be largely sympathetic to the arguments that you're making right now, the arguments that you've made uh, in your books and in the, the documentary, most likely to succeed. And so I'm hoping that we can, we can quickly kind of push back past those arguments, which I think are very necessary for parents who are still in the conventional uh, mindset. And, and we've got parents and other people listening who, you know, that's, they've moved past that already. And so I'm going to come back. I'm going to circle back to your story. You uh, graduated from Stanford. You went on to be part of a successful, uh, you worked for some businesses. You were then part of a venture capital firm. You did very well. And what I, what I loved hearing about your sort of origin story was that you were sending your kids to a, a fancy private school and you were able to come in and visit the school at one point. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we. I mean, I, my journey has has taken me all sorts of places, and and I think if I had known when my kids were quite young what I know today, we would have done things quite differently when it comes to their schools. I mean, I, I would say so. I'm not where your listeners are. You know, if you go went back ten, fifteen years ago, so I, I think fifteen years ago, I thought the the real role of a parent was to make sure their kids buckled down and did their homework and that they get good grades, and. Um, you know, one of the things that happened, it was a, it's a, seems like a funny story, but it got me going on this was my son was in third grade and, uh, you know, I, you know, I would talk to them a lot and I said, what are you working on in school that you're interested in? And he said, well, we're doing some stuff in science on simple machines. And so we went to Home Depot and we just bought, you know, it turns out for 20 bucks, you can buy everything you need to play around with simple machines. And so we did that and we set some stuff up in the basement and just kind of hacked around several nights and um, and did all sorts of different challenges. Um, but one of the things we did was, you know, I, I sort of said they had a basketball coach who was a good sized guy. I mean, he, he could easily weigh 300 pounds. And so one of our challenges was to design something that could let, you know, a, a third grader lift up a 300 pound man. And he comes home from school a few days later and he, he doesn't look very happy. And I say, what's the matter? And he says, I guess I'm not very good at science. And I say, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, we had a test today on simple machines and I got a terrible grade. So I looked at the test and I had no idea. I mean, this wasn't that I, I hacked the school system to find out what was on the test. But the question was, what simple machine would you use to lift a grown man? And my son had sketched out a six pulley system with stick figures for the, the kid and stick figures for the man and how the pulleys would go together and everything else. And he had a big red X on it minus 17 i still remember that number and then underscored three times was lever and and i just said what and so i went in and talked to the teacher i said you know like i don't i really don't care about his grade it's third grade science i mean like i don't even know why you're giving grades in third grade science but but i said you know like two things one is i actually don't think that just with a lever a kid that's you know three feet five inches tall can lift a six foot tall, 300 pound man. I mean, a lever with maybe a step ladder or something, but I don't think you can do it actually. And, and, but the second thing is why wouldn't you ask this question more expansively? You know, show a design using one or more simple machines that would left, let you lift a grown man. 
that seems like a great question. Mm -hmm. and, and her answer was, it, this was not you know, just a yawner teacher. She said, we've actually looked at those types of questions. We found them to be poor preparation for kids who later on their future is going to be defined by standardized tests. And we, when we make our questions creative and expansive, that turns out to be very poor preparation for standardized oh my tests. Gosh. And, and you just say, uh, you know, like, and then you, you just suddenly it hits you across that, you know, like you just say, wait a minute, Th this is not just not helping my kid. This is actively impairing their life prospects. And then you just say, I got to do something different. We got to. Okay. But, but most parents don't say, I got to do something different. And then they go off and essentially dedicate themselves to education philanthropy like you've yeah. done. And so what, yeah. what was the, the tipping point? And, and what did you end up doing with your own kids? Well, they, you know, I usually don't talk about them because they, they kind of would love to stay private. But I mean, I will say kind of at a high level, I, I gave them permission. You know, when they were both in high school, I said, I'm never going to look at your report cards. Whatever you do in high school, do it for you and not for me. Mm. And, and I explained the trade-offs, you know, that if you, if you grind away and get better grades, it will lead to a better college outcome if that's what you want to do. But I felt like the right thing for me to do was to really, you know, kind of eat my own cooking with, with what I was saying and writing, which was to say, it's really your life. It's really your choice. Mm -hmm. And, and I did that. And I'd say for both of my kids, I mean, it, it worked out quite differently. I've got two kids um, and one kind of liked school and liked the intellectual challenge and, and didn't, wasn't a hoop jumper, but, but took it more seriously and did, did fine. And the other one said, this is a waste of my time and I don't like it. And just really didn't spend much time on his, on school. And, um, you know, and, and people, I think a lot of people said with the second kid that I was really setting this kid up for failure, but it turns out, you know, he, he spent about six weeks in a mediocre college, hated it, failed, but he sort of created his own career path. And honestly, today at 22, he's doing stuff way beyond, I mean, what he's doing today with his life, any college graduate would kill for. Mm. And, and he's not a, you know, it's not that, that this is a one in a million kid. This is, this is what every kid could do. Mm. And your audience is a particularly great audience because I think they know that. But I mean, I mean, I always say, what if kids by the time they were 18 had found something they really loved doing and had sort of enough exposure to how to organize and manage an entrepreneurial career that they could do something they love and support themselves with that. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an incredible gift to give a kid? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and, the, and then you start to say, and I, I talk about this and point to a lot of examples in my book of kids that do exactly that, that as 18 year olds, they can make, I don't know what, 25, 30 bucks an hour or more. And you start to say, well, wait a minute, a kid at 18 who can make 30 bucks an hour is making way more than almost any kid graduating from college makes. And, and then you say, well, just what the hell is a trade-off? And, and yeah, you know, I understand the maturing that happens when a kid goes off to college. And for some kids, that's really important. But I think a lot of times what we call maturing is actually beer, beer pong. You know, you look, look no further than the, uh, the rape addicts at Swarthmore. I mean, that's a particularly egregious example. But, but I think we idealize that college experience beyond what it is for most kids. Mm -hmm. And, and the second thing is we, you know, a lot of people say, well, college is building their soul or something. And I think it does for some kids. I mean, some kids will go there and just soak up the intellectual content and, and thrive in that environment. 
But a lot of them, you know, when I ask them what courses they're taking, they can't even tell me. And, and I think we need to just be more realistic when we look at what's going on in school as to how much are kids really, you know, like, are they really learning? Mm -hmm. what, what's it doing to their worldview and their values? Mm -hmm. and, and I think a, a kind of a hard objective look kind of leads you to, to you, you get a lot more confident about taking bold steps when you, you really look at, you know, what, what same old, same old is doing for these kids or doing to these kids. There's a lot there, and we're definitely going to circle back to the college arguments. I'm sympathetic to both sides um, of the argument. Something that you brought up in an article you wrote on TED.com was uh, you commented on what a, a Cedar Rapids, Iowa school did called the, the Billy Madison Project. Oh, where kind of like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I love that. And I love the movie Billy Madison, for the record. And so this is where uh, an adult goes back to, to school and experiences what it's like to be there. But this is just a, a parent going back for just one full day of normal school. Is that right? Yeah, well, it was not just a parent. It was, they got 65 community members. So they got uh -huh. the mayor, they got members of the town council, they got parents, they got business people. You know, but what they, their goal in Cedar Rapids was to get widespread buy-in from the community to reimagine school. And so they came up with this, I thought, really creative you know, approach, which is they asked teachers to organize a full school day on a Saturday. And then they had that, you know, group of 65 leaders experience school. And then at the end, they said, okay, do you think we should keep doing this and try to do it a little bit better? Or do you think we should really do something bold? And, you know, when you've been through that for a day, when you've got the mayor asking for permission to go to the bathroom, when the, a business person who's a money manager says, we just, I just sat through a math class there's not anything that was taught here that any adult ever uses. When they start to see it, they get a lot more enthusiastic about, you know, reimagining school experiences. And then in their case, you know, and, and what I love is, and, and the point of my book, What School Could Be, is to show all sorts of different creative approaches. You know, people will say, what's your favorite school or what model works? And I say, there aren't, you know, that's not the way to think about it. There are great models that work for communities or for schools or for families and for a particular kid. Mm -hmm. The goal is not to find the model for everyone. That's, that's fool's errand. Mm -hmm. The goal is to find what works, what gets that kid excited. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so they've got this, you know, half of the school day is spent on Iowa big and they connect kids to real projects in their community to, to, initiatives that businesses or nonprofits really need help with. Mm -hmm. And the kids' assessment is, did they come up with something that really helped that organization? Mm -hmm. And they draw on kids, they put teams together from all across the community. So, you know, a lot of, our, you know, there's been this unfortunate trend toward more segregation in schools just by income and neighborhood. And, and they came up with a way to make sure kids from all walks got a chance to collaborate and learn from each other, but also realize that, that kids from all sorts of different backgrounds can offer enormous contributions to a, to a group project. And just to clarify, Iowa Big is a sort of supplementary public funded program that gets kids, kids are still enrolled in high school, but it gets them out into the community doing real projects, working with real professionals. Right. But, but they still have a, a traditional high school at the end of the day, it's sort of supplementary. Um, and the Billy Madison Project, I think anything where you get a parent or any adult going back into school, it's so telling that no adult ever goes back to high school. Uh, you know, we might have alumni 
sure, there's there's reunions where there's a bunch of alcohol, right, and and food yeah. to make the thing palatable. But you know, I'll go back to to the UC Berkeley campus to visit it because I like it there. But I've, I've never once dreamed of going back to my high school, and certainly not sitting in on a high school class because we just want to put it behind us. Just that <laughs> yeah. that overwhelming reality should be a giant indicator. And so I think any chance to get adults to go back and experience what it's like to be in school and remember, ah, this is what I'm putting kids through for seven hours a day for 12 years of their life. Uh, It's valuable. Um, You focus a lot on public schools and public solutions, and the film Most Likely to Succeed is centered around High Tech High in San Diego, which is a school I've been familiar with for a long time. It's technically a charter school. They're expanding. They have more than one campus now. Is that right? Yeah, four. Yeah. Four campuses. It's a wonderful model. It's it just how would you describe high tech high in, in one sentence? What, what, what are the nuts and bolts? Well, it was started from scratch with a fair amount of funding. So they had an unfair advantage, but they've been focused on, you know, a project based learning environment for kids that, um, you, you know, looks a lot more like what adults do in the real world than it looks like traditional school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a good assessment to me. But what I loved about, there's a lot to like about this film. I definitely recommend it. I think it's a great kind of gateway drug to get parents into to thinking critically in the first place here. And the beginning of the film was incredible because I, I believe it was the filmmaker's daughter, Greg Whiteley's fourth grade daughter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who is, I don't know how he's, you know, recording this on, on video. This is happening. And there's this parent teacher meeting and and the girl's mom is you know, t- talking to the, the teacher about this math test. And this poor girl is in tears. Yep. And, and the teacher is telling her, like, well, you're building character. You're building perseverance. perseverance. You're learning how to do your best. And then the film pauses. And you, you hear Greg's, uh, the dad's voice saying, wait a second. I know this face. My daughter is thinking, this whole thing called school is bullshit. And it's it's perfect. Um, what happens? Uh, although, although I have to tell you, though, yeah. and this is something very few people know, but Ooh. oh yeah, I, I had the idea to do this film. So that my, I, you know, like I often say, who knows if I have a positive impact, but I at least have a strategy. So as I got focused on this, I felt the right place to start was with a great film because you can reach people emotionally, yeah. and also you've got leverage in terms of getting that message out powerfully. So I did a six month search and I found Greg, called him up told him I wanted to do a film on education and would he be interested in directing it? Um, you know, we ended up working together and having a great time. Turns out he had already filmed that scene, you know, before I ever called him, it was just sitting on his hard drive. It's one of those things that somebody who's a filmmaker does to capture life moments for their kids. And as we got into the film, he called me one day and said, I think I've got the perfect opening for the film. And there it was. And, and what I really, I mean, people love that opening, and I think they should. But, but I also think it largely explains kind of the Faustian bargain so many parents make with their kid, which is, you know, it, it is around fourth, fifth grade. Kids just say, this is really boring. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get up every day and drill on low-level math stuff. And so what you find is most parents will, will then wage this long-term campaign where they say, as a teacher does, well, you got to, you know, and it, because if you don't, you won't get good grades. And if you don't get good grades, you won't get into the right college. And if you don't get into the right college, you won't have a good life. And you say that 
day in and day out, year in and year out. And, and when you do that, you're just hollowing out any sense of purpose or agency from the kid. And I think that's what's happening is to a lot of high school kids is they, they just sort of feel like I'm putting my life on hold. I'm selling my soul to the devil just to get into the right college, the college my parents want for me. And then college is incredibly competitive. They don't get in. And they just sort of feel like, man, what, what was that all about? And, and I think it's really in a profound way shaping values and ruining lots and lots of kids. Okay. Here's one of the areas I want to push back on. Uh, a word that gets used in the movie a lot and a word that Tony Wagner has become famous for promoting is grit. And, and this is one of these so-called 21st century skills. People talk about the marshmallow test, people you know, talking yep. about pushing through. Uh, I think one of the best criticisms I've heard of the whole concept of grit and of Tony Wagner's uh, book is it came from Alfie Cohn. And, and he essentially said, okay, grit doesn't mean anything if you don't get to choose what you're focusing on. And I interpret that as, where's the consent? Uh, just being given a project, whether this is a traditional conventional school assignment or some sort of very cool, hip, kind of innovative sounding project. So for example, uh, in the movie, there, you have two teachers getting to collaborate on uh, ancient civilizations and, and engineering and, and building. And they, you know, these, the students in this class, they're doing Socratic seminars. Uh, they, you know, the incredible resources all around them. The building is incredible. There's all these computers and, and stuff for building stuff. And they end up producing a play about, uh, what was it, the, about the Taliban and, yep. and then building the, you know, this incredible sculpture that represents the rise and fall of civilizations, a, a moving structure. But still, I, I couldn't help but think, Ed, that these kids really didn't have a choice in the matter. And so, so how different is high-tech high from any other school? If you have two you know, cool teachers who have a lot of teacher autonomy saying, you are now going to do a project on ancient civilizations and engineering. What, what's, how different can it be? Can it just be a little bit better? Is this just a Band-Aid on a gushing arterial wound? I, I, well, there are two questions here, grit and then what we see in high-tech high. So let me talk about both of them, but I'll start with the second first. You know, one of the things we do in the film is we go out of our way to say, don't copy this. We're not showing you high-tech high with the goal of showing you the best school. We're showing a school that's different from traditional schools that works for them, works for their community. And, and I think your observation, and, and there is part of this that goes on in other aspects of the school, but I think it's a fair criticism to say um, that while I think what they were doing was far better than conventional or traditional school, I think even better is when kids invent their own projects. And so, you know, because I think your characterization is quite accurate, which is, the teacher just teachers decided you're going to do a wheel. The teachers decided you're going to do a play. I think for freshmen just starting at the school, that's probably a great start. And I think if you looked at some of the work going on there for upperclassmen, it's a lot more freeform where the students mm. do have real voice. But but what I say, what you see in the film is what every school should be doing 24-7. I wouldn't say that. I don't think they would either. And I do think, and I write about this a lot of what school could be, is that the more the projects are driven, created, committed to by the students, 
the more they've got all the ambiguity and risk of failure that comes from a project tied to a real world challenge where you're just trying to figure out a you know identify a problem and figure out a solution the more that's the case the better the preparation and and so to me directionally i, I think what you see in the film is a great directional sense of what school could be about mm-hmm. but but if somebody said this is it this is this is exactly what schools should be doing yeah. i would not I would not say you're right. I would say actually, I think I think it needs to go quite a bit further. So that's the first point. The grit, you know, like I, I'm I'm probably I don't know where I am on your spectrum, but but I find that oftentimes grit is a great buzzword to protect boring failed curriculum. Yes, and, yes, and, thank you. And so when you know, and it, it's like sure, you know, like if somebody says to me, "Beat your head against a, a concrete wall." And then if you just do it for t- two hours, that's going to show that you've got real grit. I-, I would say like that is mindless grit. And and I, I want the kid, this is what I saw in my career in venture. I mean, the, the people I would back in venture would be the kids in school that would say, wait a minute, this is pointless. This, I don't want to do this. You know, and I think it's that, that which we, which oftentimes by the time you get to high school with kids, that's gone. You know, like I, I think that's one of the big costs of the way we organize school is that when kids are discouraged from, when they are marked down, when a kid that says, wait a minute, why should I do this? When am I ever going to learn, you know, use this? Why are you making me do something I can do online? I think way too often that's a C student or an F student or a student we should medicate or a student that, you know, is like put in the penalty box for bad behavior and and we feel like we got to bring them around, and that's actually exactly the mindset you need if you're going to change the world. And so, but back to the film and sort of tying this whole discussion together is you do see at the end of the film. I don't want to give away the ending, but I am. Is that while that project wasn't driven by that one student, so he plugged into the project, he took on his piece, he had a big ambitious idea, he failed, he didn't get it done. The fact that it was something other people could see and evaluate the fact that he worked with other teammates the fact that he felt like he had let people down the fact that he didn't want to see this this wheel hanging around his school for the next 4 years with an empty piece i mean he kept coming back to get it done and i think that's certainly a more authentic form of grit when a kid says i'm sticking with this because i think it's important mm-hmm. i'm not sticking with it because i can get an iphone from a rich family I'm not sticking with this because otherwise I don't pass the state mandated exam and I have to be held back. You know, like a kid that says, I want to do this and I'm just not going to give up until I do it. That's, I think, what we want to reinforce. But I often think it's like we, we've got it all wrong. Like I, I'm waiting for AP Grit to come out as a court <laughs> where, you know, where you read Angela Duckworth's book and you take multiple choice questions about, you know, some aspect of this side or the other thing. And, you know, the, rec- the reality is, a lot of these important character traits, you can't really explicitly teach, but you can put in place challenges and have really authentic assessments that promote and value those skills. Yeah. So it would be the end of, end of creativity in schools if we said we we're going to have multiple choice tests on creativity. But if you give kids open-ended assignments, back to what we said a, a few minutes ago about third graders on simple machines – Come up with one or as many designs as you can with one or more simple machines that let somebody your age and size lift a grown man. That's a creative, expansive challenge. If even better, 
you know, and hard for third grades, but definitely not impossible. If the kid says to the adults around her, him, I want to come up with some simple machine designs that let me lift a grown man and then sticks with it. That kid at that age is soaring compared to what happens in most schools today. I agree. And, and for the record, I like high tech. High. I speak highly of it. I wish I went there when I was in high school and it seems like a wonderful place to work as a teenager. And I agree with you. It's going in the right direction. I just can't help but get this feeling in my stomach that because they still have to follow the common core at the end of the day, because even though it's project-based, even though they're demonstrating their work, even though they're working on teams, the ratio of, of control to, to autonomy is just maybe for a few kids, like the ones featured in the film, um, it's going to be qualitatively different from regular school. Gosh, I, I had trouble buying um, the idea. And, and as you said, this is high tech high. It got funded by a huge initial grant. It's, uh, it's, it's a special case. And so to think about expanding this, this is another large pushback I, I have for you, uh, expanding this into a broader public school system. Um, I know that there are inspiring examples. Uh, Jefferson County Open School near Denver is a longtime great example. I know you visited all 50 states and you saw the most innovative schools out there. Uh, but the, the idea that, that high-tech highs, uh, similarly disruptive schools can flourish in the public school system, that's an idea I gave up on a long time ago. And, and I'm, I keep my ears open for evidence that this is, uh, this is changing. But uh, are you familiar with, with Powderhouse Studios, Ted? Yeah. Okay, and you know that just in, in March 2019, they, they got denied. They got told by Somerville, Massachusetts, that they, they cannot open this innovation school. Well, that, well th- th- this is like an incredibly small world because Michael Flaherty is one of the people that connected me to Greg Whiteley. So um, I have that connection. And I do think there's some interesting things going on in Massachusetts. So Jeff Riley, I think, is really on the right wavelength. and. Boston Public Schools just hired Brenda Caselius from Minnesota, who's in my book, who's a very, you know, I think she's incredibly innovative. So who knows? But but back to the macro point here is I, I think one of the things that um, gets me excited about moving schools in the direction of transferring more of the learning to the kids and connecting more of that learning to the real world is that it takes the daily pressure off of the teacher. And so let me just contrast two different things in high school. You know, one is imagine, I mean, and I feel for, I feel for a teacher who's in an under-resourced school with 35 kids in, in their class that aren't really excited about being in school. And now my job is to get them fired up and excited about balancing chemical equations or solving simultaneous equations. You know, something that that the kid looks you in the eye and says, am I ever really going to use this? And you know, the voice in your head is saying, not in a million years. And now you got to try to make them learn it. I mean, you know, some teachers can do that. That's amazing. But that is a very big ask. And so I feel like the opportunity here is, and I think that that it's what informs a lot of what I'm doing these days with, um, you know, the change model that I've been trying to capture through this thing called the Innovation Playlist is that as we start, particularly if you can start in early ages so the kids get comfortable doing this, get good at doing it, 
where kids are inventing their own initiatives more than being told what to do. And then because they're motivated, because it is their initiative, they go at it with a vengeance. And the role of the adult is to connect, guide, suggest, uh, support, celebrate, but also provide constructive, careful feedback. I think, you know, you start to see um, some of the issues, you know, like a lot of people will watch a film on High Tech High and say, I could never do that. And maybe they couldn't. And you see these kind of world-class teachers at doing Socratic seminar. But what we're trying to do with this playlist is to say to teachers that might have no experience with it, here's some easy, simple ways to let your kids just engage with each other directly. Okay. But, but Ted, yep. I, I just, I can't believe that there are easy, simple ways to let your kid, to let students have more autonomy, to give teachers more autonomy beyond like giving them a genius hour. Okay. Here's whatever, two hours on Wednesdays to do your own thing. And now back to the regularly scheduled, regularly scheduled program. And when you have something like Powderhouse, which won the, the XQ super school grant, it got $10 million. They did everything right. They, you know, they started by connecting with with local, you know, building trust in the community with all the the people in positions of authority, and it still got voted down because uh, because the the mayor and the school board says this isn't you know doesn't serve all students equally well. We can't devote extra resources to this this crazy innovative thing. It's just uh, I I think incremental change is not going to get us beyond a few lucky situations where you have really you know nice superintendents and principals and school boards. I just feel like what you're describing, everything that you're saying about giving, you know, letting kids start their own projects, that's where the magic happens. And, and adults are facilitators. They're supporters. They are not driving the process. They are there to, to lend a hand and expertise and resources. That is, that is not happening in the public school system. Like that is happening at these, these small, very alternative schools that are completely outside the system or with homeschoolers and unschoolers. And, and so we can talk about Sudbury schools, agile learning centers, liberated learner centers. This is where there, there's real autonomy, genuine, full autonomy being, being given. Um, so again, I'm not trying to, to poo-poo your efforts or anyone else's efforts to promote positive change in the school system. I, I just want to get into your head and ask, like, what gives you the, the faith that anything big is going to change. Why not just focus on, on where you know you can do good instead of like battling the inertia of the public school system? Well, you know, a couple things. One is I've done a lot in the last three years in several states. And so um, with this model of permission and encouragement from the top, you know, teachers leading the way with, with and, and I'm, I know you, as I say this, you're going to say exactly what I just said and think is just, you know, not going to get there in time, but with a model of small steps that lead to big change. Um, and, and we got this great resource that we're using and we're getting people to kind of buy in and, and contribute back to it. The, the whole sense of what's going on in schools in the entire state of Hawaii, which is, a you know, 250,000 kids in school, in two and a half years, it is totally different. Um, you know, in districts, you know, freehold uh, public school district in New Jersey, totally different. Um, okay. Virginia, we're doing something totally different. Give me some details. What, what does totally different look like? Well, if you, if you went to Freehold, uh, I spent a day there, you know, about a year ago. If you went three or four years ago, it was 100% conventional. It was just exactly what school's always been. When I went there a year ago, 
I couldn't find anything conventional. I mean, it looked just like High Tech High. This was 17 schools, completely transformed in two years. A guy named Ross Kaysen. I went there because he won New Jersey Superintendent of the Year. And, and I've sort of been trying to pull from these things. What And that's what's in my book, is what can make this possible? And, and so I am seeing enough progress at some degree of, and I hate to use the word scale, because scale implies often, or people often infer, that when you use the word scale, you're talking about one model. And, and here we're really talking about lots of different approaches. But I'm seeing really encouraging things at a unit as big as a state in Hawaii, uh, in Virginia, uh, in lots of districts. So that gives me some optimism. Will, will we get there in time? Let, let me just say, though, what, what really drives me on this. A lot of people will say, it's so great to see you're so interested in education. And, and I really say back, and I don't mean to be negative, but I say I'm actually not – it's not education that's my interest. It's a healthy, functioning democracy. And so if you think – which I started saying to friends you know, eight, nine, ten years ago – that if we don't get this right fairly quickly, I'm not convinced our democracy will hold together. You know That if too many kids just keep going through school, they leave with no real – you know, distinctive proficiency, their intellectual curiosity has been killed. If they went on to college, they've sitting on a pile of student loan debt. And if enough of those people, and they have no citizenship skills, they can't even do basic fact checking. You know, the m more millions that pile up on the sidelines like that, the more unstable our democracy is. Mm. And so then the question is, if you believe that, which I believe, and I've been saying that for quite some time, and eight, nine, 10 years ago, nobody took that seriously. And in 2019, all I get are people nodding their heads. You know, I mean, we're living and breathing the consequences of a world full of people just adrift, you know, no real sense of purpose or conviction, not prepared to do things in their life that they find fulfilling that can help them support themselves. And so they do things like throw hand grenades into the ballot box. That is our life today in the United States of America. And so if that's true, and I think it is, then I just look at this and say, so what if we create a few new schools? So what if we have an example here and there? I mean, it's good for the kids in that, but that's not going to preserve our democracy. I mean, if the whole thing crumbles, then we're all screwed. It doesn't matter if your kid went to Powderhouse or not, you're screwed. And, and so that's what I'm throwing my body at. And now, you know, you, you could say, you might well be thinking as I'm saying this, boy, Ted, are you wasting your time? And, and it may be that 10 years from now, people look back, I look back and say, it was a big waste of time. But I think if we don't have a change model that can reach lots of schools, I don't see the point. I mean, it's my whole issue with XQ Super Schools. I mean, so what? 10 new schools that are overfunded? I mean, how's that relevant to 137,000 existing schools? I mean, I hate to be harsh, but I mean... So what? And so, you know, I've got a great, you know, here I am bragging, but I mean, I, I spent enough time in the world of innovation. I think I've got a, at least a sense of a change model that might work. And, and so you look at a why when, you know, it's definitely not every teacher at every school, but every school has some innovative teachers. If they feel supported, they start doing things differently. You know, you would, you would love to have the entirety of the school day be different for kids, but when I talk to a lot of adults years and years out of school and say, what got you excited? 
it wasn't the entirety. It was it was something. And and so one of the phrases I use in my talks is, you know, in the desert, it doesn't take a lot of rain to let the flowers bloom. So I'm just trying to get flowers to bloom in lots of places with a change model that has some prospect of working. And I believe, I mean, the reason I travel 275 nights a year, the reason instead of just loving my life in retirement with the money I've got, I give all this money away to try to make a difference, is that if we don't get that right, I don't see a future for this country. And that sounds stark, but I think it's, I think that, that we have every indication that that's happening. And so, so my, what I say back to the people who do have it right is what can we do to convey the insights, the learning, the experiences you've got more broadly so that other people can start doing some of that themselves. And, you know, as I say, if I hadn't seen some success at a state level, which is a pretty good sized unit, if I hadn't seen lots of success at schools, some success at districts, some success at states, I would probably just give up and go find some island and live there. <laughs> but but I, I, I think that I, I wouldn't say, I don't know where I'd come out on a 50-50 bet. I might not bet on this you know, at 50-50, but it's definitely not 0%. I think there's some chance that we can, we can create enough momentum and then I work on some other things. You know, I, I'm funding things to try to rethink college admissions. I'm trying to get at these ridiculous state-mandated assessments. Um, you know, and there's some leverage points that if we can start knocking down those barriers, you know, things would change more quickly. But you know, I do feel it's a fight of our lives, and I think it's worth fighting. And you know, it's it's a little bit like uh, you know, like uh, Game of Thrones where you're up against the White Walkers. But maybe if we if the that that that, that you gotta bring the fight, wall down here or, yeah, or yeah, build the but, wall back up, I'm not sure where to go with this analogy. Yeah. Well, you know, but it's true, right? If we could get college admissions to change, K through twelve would change overnight. Let's 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 talk about that. And and I just want to quickly respond. I, I am glad that you and people like you and the XQ Super School team are are doing what they're doing. Because I think that and I'm glad to hear you say that you are seeing changes on entire district levels and sometimes even entire state levels that are going more in the direction of something like high tech high, more project based, more real world demonstration instead of everything as a test, uh, more autonomy for teachers. And so that's that's great. And and I realized that when I opted out of of my path to work in the public school system, that I in a large way I, I was opting out of of staying in touch with what's going on there. And so it's it's easy for me to, to sit in this little, you know, radical alternative education world and be like, meh, the public school system's never going to change. And I'm not actually out there doing the hard stuff and having the conversations that you are. So, uh, so th- thank you for taking your time and resources. To well, I'm, 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 as I say, I'm, I'm, there's no shortage of time on, that I'm putting in on this. Um. <laughs> okay, uh, college. You... Uh, I, I read online that you are skeptical of the idea of of free uh, government funded college yep. for for everyone who wants it. And, and tell me a bit about that. Oh, I, th- I mean, I think it's a simple case, which is you know if you if you make all state universities free, you know, like who's making up the budget dollars? I don't see states sitting there saying we've got mountains of cash. On our hands. I mean, in fact, states have drastically reduced the support of state colleges. Federal government's broke and then some. So, you know, the only money we seem to be able to find federally is for tax cuts for people like me. Um, So that's the first thing. If you make it free, 
where who makes up the budget shortfall. The second thing is, the reality is that these state universities, I mean, you know, are you in, where do you live? You're in Connecticut? I'm in California, sort oh, of. California. I, don't, I don't have a permanent home base, but I, yeah. you know, I'm familiar with the, the public universities of California. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at the entering class of UCLA, UC Berkeley. You know, I, I mean, are these, most of those spots taken by well-off families or by kids climb, trying to climb out of poverty? I mean, you like, does it really make a shred of sense to basically have taxpayers underwrite the tuition costs for some of the, the wealthiest families in the country when those state universities need the money? And so I just look at this and say, well, it just is a bad idea. I mean, if, if, if we believe it's a great investment, which we could argue about, then we should just set the tuition level at a reasonably high price, let the families that can afford it pay it, and then direct as much money as we can into scholarships for you know, the kids that need the, by the way, that need support for much more than just the tuition. You know, I mean, the poor kids, free tuition doesn't do much for them because you know, for every dollar you spend on tuition, you spend a dollar to maybe even $2 on everything else. And so I just think it, la- it it just shows a lack of understanding of economics. And so, and I think if I'm a taxpayer with no kids going to college, or I'm a taxpayer whose kids aren't going to college, I'm like saying, why the hell am I covering the cost of, you know, look no further than the college admissions scandal, but, you know, some of the wealthiest families in the world. And those entering classes, by the way, and, you know, if you look at the top 30 colleges in our country, it's like, the the number of kids from the 1% is equal to the number of kids from the bottom 60%. So yeah, that's right. So you know, so so should college be more affordable? You know, but but I get at this. I mean, the one of the points I make is if kids left high school with a distinctive, you know, proficiency that let them make 20, 30 bucks an hour or more, which I think every every high school kid could. You know, that is very achievable, not with years and years of time, but just with giving them selectively the right projects to work on, finding out what they're interested in and getting them good at something where they can market that capability on Upwork. Then you don't need to have as many scholarship dollars because instead of scooping beans and Chipotle as your work, you know, your work supplement for your college, making the minimum wage, you know, you're doing a website design project for people and you're making 30 bucks an hour. Well, I... I don't know if the the costs of college stay the same. I think even if you go from earning ten dollars an hour to earning twenty dollars an hour as a young person, it's still a prohibitive number of hours that you need to work, you know, to fulfill this ideal of, of paying your own way through college. No, um, no, actually not. I mean, you know, if you do the math on, you know, so if you, you know, just and I could you I could name 10, 15, 30 things besides website design, but let's stick with this. Right, yeah. If you're good at website design, you can make thirty bucks an hour in Upwork. If you work 10, 15 hours a week during the school year and all summer doing website design, you can make all the cost, tuition, room, board, everything for college at a state college in a year. So you can go to college for all four years with part-time work during the school year and summer jobs. You can cover the cost of college and come out debt-free. And, you know, and so question is, you know, like, why would that not be something to, to, encourage kids, help kids, empower kids to get good at through high school. Mm-hmm. And, well, you, you know, you, you couldn't cover the cost of an expensive private school. Yeah. But, you know, you certainly cover the, you know, any, any state college, you cover those costs. And so do we want to direct massive amounts of money to, you know, making college free? 
the process gutting those college budget dollars, that just seems like bad, bad policy. So what do you think about the situation that parents are put in when they think about whether to support their kid who maybe, you know, you're not quite sure if this kid is, is ready for college, if they're, if they're college material. Um, you have to decide whether to kind of push them down the four-year university track or to let them go straight into something like a skilled trade or perhaps becoming a web developer that will let them earn 20 or 30 or $40 an hour right out the gate. Maybe they're age 19 or 20. And that's a very, as you said, that's a very empowering feeling to feel like you can, you can pay your own way when you're so young um, and you don't have any debt. But, yep. you know, the question is, will my kid be locked into that forever by not getting the four-year degree? You know, are you familiar with the book, um, The Case Against Education by Brian Kaplan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He was one of my podcast guests. And, and so he's all about explaining signaling and how, whether we like it or not, four-year college degrees uh, are showing employers that you are hardworking, conscientious, diligent, and you can conform to a certain degree. And that without those, uh, it's, you know, this is why the same way that, same reason that we get high school diplomas, even though we know that we're not learning much in high school, it's it's this signaling power. And so if you have a 20-year-old who can earn $35 an hour, um, but they don't have that degree, then, then as a parent, you might be rightly concerned that you are limiting their, their future upside potential or earning potential. And so, so I wonder if you've gotten any, any pushback from parents when you're talking about helping kids develop marketable skills at a young age instead of going to college on that point. Well, you know, so, so there's logical pushback and emotional pushback. Yeah. Uh, so I do get pushback. You know, particularly the richer the school, the more I suggest this, the more the blood drains out of parents' faces. <laughs> um, parents are incredibly risk averse. You know, f- first on the signaling, you know, there's this there's this cartoon. I think it was a New Yorker cartoon where where they say on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Yeah. Well, if you go to Upwork, you know, most of the people that you hire on Upwork to do things for you are you hire them on the basis of their portfolio and their recommendations. You don't know where they went to college. You know, if I want to get somebody to, to do a website for me, I look at five websites they've done for other people and say, those are great websites. That kind of is a look, that's kind of the structure I want. And so the more the economy becomes the creative economy that's portfolio driven, the more the signaling is authentic evidence of, of competence instead of uh, a credential. I think that's very healthy. Um, yeah, you know, now, Will Goldman Sachs hire you because you, you've got a great portfolio website? I know they don't care about that. They want you know Ivy League kids. Will crazy things like Enterprise Car? They will still use college degree as a screening device for yeah. renting a car. I mean, you know, like imagine the standing behind a counter at an airport and renting out cars. That does not seem like the best use of a college degree. But that's what they do. So, so there's a craziness of the legacy world, and then there's the expand, you know, just the expansive possibilities of the creative world. You know, all that said, parents do get really nervous, and you know, I get that. And most parents think this is the best path. I mean, we we imbue it in everything around our world. You know, commercials, movies, TV shows. I've been rewatching. Uh, it was a great series, Friday Night Lights, and so, and you just you know like. Over and over, the message is, no, no, you're better than that. You can go to college. You know, 
When I go to schools and say, do you celebrate a kid who's created a great career path right out of high school? They don't. But they celebrate a kid who goes to Podunk U, never asking how much debt they're taking on, never looking at the probability they're going to graduate. And so when you think about relegating somebody to a life path, let me ask this. If a kid goes to a, to a college without really having a clear plan of what they want to get out of it, kind of goes through the motions for four years, plays lots of beer pong, piles up 125K of student loan debt, and comes out, I think you're looking at a kid that has had a lot of life options curtailed, okay? Now you take a kid who gets really good at website design or uh, making videos or sound mixing or running, you know, culinary and running a catering business or Excel, a million different things. They can use a really appealing skill, a skill that employers want and say, what I'd really love to do long-term is be in this profession maybe I want to be an auto mechanic. Well, it's a lot better to go to a local auto repair shop and say, will you hire me? I can make your website better, but I want to learn about auto mechanics than to go to that you know, place and say, I can factor polynomials, hire me. You're like, bullshit, I don't care about factoring <laughs> And so a lot of these skills are actually door openers to all sorts of interesting longer-term professions. If we get ever ever get colleges start to start to value real world experience to say, yeah, your, your SATs weren't great, but boy, you were an incredible car mechanic. Um, you, you might be a great mechanical engineer here because which by the way, w w what's a better back to the way we opened this discussion. What will tell you more about somebody's ability to be a mechanical engineer? Can they take apart and put car engines back together or can they memorize a few formulas? Yeah. And yeah. I think we're missing that, but yeah, yeah. But w would I rather have a kid who at age 21 had piled away some savings, has a much better sense of what they want to do with their life, has one or more great skills that always give them a safety net, who then decides, I do want to go to college, and goes, maybe they're old enough that they're missing the, the, the beer guzzling parties, the, the shot parties, all that crap that, that you find, you know. I mean, look no further than friggin' Swarthmore. You know, I mean, how many people who know Swarthmore w would think, oh yeah, that's the place where they have rape addicts? You know, like, really? You know, like, you know, we just think that yeah, every so kid at Swarthmore, yeah, we think every kid at Swarthmore is debating Socrates and Hegel at two in the morning with engaged classmates. I I'm sorry, that's just not the reality yeah. for most kids in college today. It, you, we originally connected over my book, Better Than College, which is a subtitle, How to Build a Successful Life Without a Four-Year Degree. And so I, I am definitely sympathetic to all of your arguments, and especially with the argument that if as a young, as an 18, 19-year-old, you decide not to go straight into college, instead uh, get some real-world experience, perhaps you, know, you, you find a way to sell your services for something like $20 or $30 an hour, you build up a portfolio, and then at that point, maybe you feel that, yeah, web design has been great for a few years, but I, I want to set my sights on something bigger, so now I want to go back to college. As you said, yeah, you have to kind of suck up the discomfort of not being exactly within the age cohort, and, uh, and that's something that is surmountable, and, and you can still go back and get the degree. So I, we're on the same page there. You know, you know it's, it's interesting to think if you could snap your fingers and no kid in America could go to college until they were 21. Think about what that would change. 
Oh, we would just we would just add three more years of public high school. <laughs> well, I actually think that high schools would suddenly want to equip kids with something productive to do post high school, and the kids that go to college would actually want to do it. So, um, yeah. So anyway, so I'd, I'd actually <laughs> be interested in that. Uh, have you heard proposals for offering something like like the the Peace Corps or or AmeriCorps to to teenagers? I, I've heard this little bits. Of- but essentially, it's a government-subsidized service work uh, opportunity, and that could be something that replaces or supplements traditional high school curriculum. I, I don't usually look for my solutions yeah. in, in those places, but uh, you know, if you put back me into a corner and said, "Do you like this idea or not?" I'd say I kind of like that idea. Yeah, kind of like it. You know, you know, instead of so in Germany and in, in many other countries where they still split kids up at a younger age, around 11, into two or three different tracks, essentially the university track or, or the more uh, blue-collar track. Uh, you know, usually kids finish school at age 16 if they're going into the more blue-collar skilled trade track. And you know, they have this stigma of not being smart, not being college material. And I feel like you just need... We have this idea that, that college graduation is the rite of passage in our society. That's how you are. You are anointed as a, as a smart, productive, capable adult. First, get a, there. First, a first-class citizen. A first-class citizen. No one wants to be a second-class citizen. And so if there was something else that is not college, is not this total diet of, of abstraction everyone to become a college professor or work in, a, in an extremely abstract field. And if there was something that was that we could build that is of similar regard, and you are going through really serious challenges, but it's fundamentally, it's a different beast. It's a different kind of work. Maybe it could be some sort of service project. It could be surface, service work abroad. It could be something more entrepreneurial, uh, you know, solve a problem in your, your local community. I would love to see something like that. And that's when you bring up projects like Iowa Big, where you have high school students going out and doing actual work in the community, that, that speaks to me. And that's why John Taylor Gatto spoke to me, because yeah. he did all this work getting kids out into New York City to do actual hands-on projects, to be collaborative, to, to build stuff, to, to get actual feedback instead of this, this BS feedback we call the grading system. Um, that's very appealing to me. And so... In your work and, and in your thinking and writing about college, have you seen anything like this? Am I striking any chords for you here? Well, lots. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I hope people understood. I I was tongue in cheek when I said first class citizen for a college. Yeah, degree. of course. Yeah. But um, you know, I mean, how do we ever get to a point where a kid that's a whiz with taking apart and repairing car engines, you know, but but can't memorize Coulomb's law, is viewed as not being as smart as a kid that can do symbolic formalism, but has no idea how to make a toilet plush. I mean, I, I don't think that, that that makes any sense at all, but that's sort of the way we've stacked things in our society. And, and you know, one of the things I write about is imagine if, you know, as kids progress through K through 12, they built a portfolio of more and more challenging, interesting, expansive, creative initiatives, things they came up with, you know, they identified important problems or opportunities. They came up with ways to go at it. They stayed at it. 
And they just sort of built a body of work of things that, that you just looked at and say, that's so impressive. And if that was what was valued by employers, which I think it is to some extent, um, and that was what was valued by college admissions officers, which it isn't really to any extent. But if that's what K-12 through is about, we'd have these purpose-driven creative problem solvers coming out of our schools. You know, 18-year-olds would be really geared up to, to make their world better in important ways. And I do write about, you know, one of the most telling anecdotes or profiles in my book was my experience at the Naval Academy, where it started with just reimagining, rethinking their admissions policy. And they said, you know, we used to just look at grade point average and test scores and Eagle Scout and letters from senators or congressmen. And we realized we weren't getting the right next generation of leaders for the United States Navy. So they look at kind of what I just said. We are looking for applicants who can provide evidence that they can identify ways to make their world better create bold solutions and stay with it through thick and thin until they've produced a result they're proud of and can communicate and explain to others. And, and when I say those words, and I say them a lot in talks, I say, isn't that what you want for your kids? Isn't that what you want for the people you work with? Isn't that what you want of neighbors? And I think we do. And so the question is, why isn't that the heart and soul of school? Because, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't find many people when you say what would really make you proud of somebody, what would make you want to work with them, if they say they can infer signs of author bias and a toy reading passage that everybody would agree is boring. Um, yeah, or just the skills learned in school are how to play the school game. Yeah. And that often means how to, how to do as little work as possible to get the maximum result, how to cheat, how to manipulate. It's just, yeah, I don't want to live in a world people and 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 that's a great point about the cheating you know there's an epidemic of cheating but when you talk to these kids they don't think it's a consequential infringement because they say i mean like if our work is bullshit you know why wouldn't i cheat? i mean like, i'm not doing anything important this is just a bullshit assignment and so what's so wrong with cutting a corner to get something pointless done you know and like i, I mean i wouldn't want my kids to cheat but i mean i I would, kid that said that to me, I'd like, part of me would be saying, you know, I, I kind of get what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, to wrap this up, Ted, tell me what you are working on right now and, and what you're doing in the next months or years. What's your, what's your direction? Well, you know, I've been working at the state level. As I said, I'm a big believer. If anybody's listening and curious, if you just go to www.innovationplaylist.org, or my website, which is just my name, teddintersmith.com, um, you'll see a lot of the things I'm working on. And so, you know, the real question is, could we curate really great initiatives, put them in a suggested order, and put something in place that lets teachers in schools all across a wide area, across a district, across a, a community, across an entire state, start shifting more of the learning to the students and aligning more of the learning to the real world. And you know, the work I'm doing, I've, I mean, I'm making a fair amount of headway in three states. I've got three or four other states really interested. You know, I'm not the Gates Foundation. I don't have a palace. I don't have a building. I have me and a laptop. Um, but I feel like, you know, this is sort of like gone through a piloting stage. And I think it's, if we're going to have a change model that has some possibility of really reaching lots and lots of kids in a time frame that matters, I think this is, you know, 
got a better chance than anything else I've ever seen. And uh, so I'm working really hard on that. I've been coordinating a lot with Sir Ken Robinson on on ways we can work closely together. Um, I I keep traveling a lot, and uh, you know, and then I'm I'm worried to death about you know the future of our country and what's going on in the White House. But maybe maybe your audience doesn't care about political views. But I, <laughs> I you know I just feel like I feel like when you start to live in a world where truth doesn't matter anymore, where science is dismissed, where behavior isn't a good role model for your kids. Uh, you know, I feel like there's sort of this, you know, it sort of brings into question, you know, what's causing our society, what's causing so many adults to sort of lose their moral compass. And so, um, and I said before, when we were talking, I said, I, education to me is a means to the end. And the end is a healthy functioning democracy where people have ways to plug in, make their world better, be respected by, you know, neighbors and friends and, and fellow community members. And where school is equipping them with the mindsets and the skills that let them do that. And I think today, flat out, without any qualifier, we are not doing that in almost all the schools that are out there. And, and in fact, often are doing the opposite. And, and the longer that keeps up, the longer we don't get that right the bigger the problem, the bigger the child. It's sort of like global warming for, for the future of the next generation. You know? and, and global warming is a big problem, but <laughs> lots of kids leaving school with piles of loan debt or kids who drop out from high school thinking they're dumb when they actually have great skills. I mean, you're like, like, you, know, you hate to, to chew up nature's capital, but I think it's every bit as big a, a catastrophe to be chewing up and exhausting human capital. And I think that's what we're doing at scale. Yeah, well said. Ted Dindersmith, thank you for being on the podcast. Great, thank you.